I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president of the United States of America. Hi, I'm Kate Catherall, co-founder and partner with The Arena, and this is The Arena Talks podcast. This episode departs a bit from our usual programming of interviewing candidates, experts, and activists. Instead, this is more of a two-way conversation that we've produced in collaboration with the Great Battlefield podcast, hosted by Nathaniel G. Perlman. Nathaniel has a long history of connecting progressive politics and technology. In 1997, he founded NGP Software, now known as NGB Van, a 200-person company that is the leading technology provider to the Democratic Party. He served as CTO of the Hillary 2008 presidential campaign, and he also founded Graphicacy, a firm that helps organizations tell complex stories in visual form. After the 2016 election, Nathaniel founded Resistance Dashboard and launched the Great Battlefield podcast in order to highlight new organizations and political entrepreneurs finding new and improved ways to fight the good fight. Nathaniel interviewed me on his podcast a year ago, so we caught up on all that's happened since then and I got to ask Nathaniel about his own journey into political entrepreneurship and what he's learning in his work now. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think you will too. Take a listen. How do you want to do this? We are really interested in, in having you share the work that you're doing. And typically the, the structure that I take when we're interviewing on our podcast is I actually start with kind of like human story. So learning a bit about you and then pivoting to the work that you're doing now and what you're learning. And I think you have a somewhat similar structure, but if you want, we could maybe just kind of toggle back and forth and either I can kick things off or you can, and then maybe second half we switch, but keep it pretty conversational. Does that sound right? Yeah. Why don't we just ask each other questions and let's try to make it more of a conversation than an interview. Yeah, that sounds good. So you want to lead? Sure. So one thing I was thinking about asking you, uh, I feel like in certainly in the political professional community, if not more broadly in the political community among candidates as well, people know your work and they know what you've produced. But um, I think your work has, has been the story more so than you. And maybe that's probably intentional. But I was wondering if you would mind just sharing a little bit about how you got into the work that you're currently doing, kind of starting with like the birth to now, where you grew up, how you got into this in the first place, why it's so important to you, so that we could get to know you personally a little bit. Well, the problem with that is that I'm I'm like double your age, probably. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> the birth to now is is uh, long. You can you can zero in on the events that you think are most formative, if you like. Well, since I'm not a candidate or a person selling things, I I don't spend a lot of time telling my story and actually I try to avoid it, but that's why it's so interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So I uh, grew up in Boulder, Colorado, where my parents were teachers and spent the summers in Bradford, Vermont, where my family had half of a farm that we shared with my aunt and uncle who were potters. And so we used to drive back and forth, renting whichever house we were not in from Boulder, 2,000 miles to Vermont every summer. And I'm actually talking to you right now from Vermont, from the house that we built here and where I still spend my summers. And I think 
that probably the reason that I got interested in politics was that my family was political, like many other people's. When I was seven, I went down to vote in the George McGovern 1972 against Nixon election. And we didn't like Nixon and my precinct voted four to one for McGovern and the country disagreed. You were voting at seven or you were with your parents to vote? Well, I was, thought I was voting. They were voting. <laughs> okay. I didn't actually color in the ballot. I think. <laughs> I've taken my two daughters to vote and so they have a sense of it too. So I know what that's like. That's great. When I had a choice for something to read in elementary school or junior high school for like a book report, my dad would often put in front of me something like Eugene Debs, who was a labor leader, or Samuel Gompers, or the autobiography of Robert La Follette. So I spent a lot of time as a kid reading the obscure biographies of progressive U.S. senators or other politicians or or labor leaders. So I had a, you know an interest in that going way back. But I went to Yale. I majored in computer science. I ended up in senior year thinking I'm not going to go on as a serious student of computers. So I started to take classes that led me in other directions. And some of them were in, in political science and statistics. And I worked for a few years out of college writing campaign software for other vendors that sold to both sides of the aisle. And I was not that comfortable with that. And then I went to graduate school at MIT, where I studied American political history and statistics in the political science department. And when I came out, which was before I wrote a dissertation, but after I took my exams, so I'm a failed graduate student, mm -hmm. I started this company called NGP Software, which I thought would be at the intersection of my interests in politics and computers. And it was a different era than the one that we're in now in that there was not yet really internet in a way that you know, there's no software as a service. It was just a different world. There, there wasn't all of the social media. And I didn't know a lot about building a business, but I ran a one-person firm for two and a half years until I had a fairly sizable, maybe 60 candidate and fundraising firm client base, helping people do the technology for fundraising for Democrats, for doing compliance and basically having what you would now call a CRM. Mm -hmm. And that business just started to grow. And it has continued to, over the years, I think we're now around 200 employees, but I ran it for the first 10 to 12 years. And uh, it was an amazing experience in what I've been calling political entrepreneurship when I see it in other people. It's an amazing story that you did that just coming straight out of school. Did you have, do you remember who your first candidate or campaign was that used it? The first clients were Democratic fundraising firms. And I was hustling. So I went into a firm called Campaign Finance Consultants that did a lot of Senate side fundraising. The first thing I really did was discover that they had a bunch of broken computers and helped them add more RAM and built a little database for them and a couple other fundraising firms. Because what was happening at the time was people were managing lists in WordPerfect or... Wow. Well, and they were 
entering the same name into every single campaign that they were fundraising for in a lot of the cases of a lot of these firms. And so by creating a relational database for them, I was saving them a lot of time. And I was also building the same thing as it turned out to be scores of democratic fundraising firms so that the effort I put into building technology for one redounded to the benefit of a bunch of them. And they naturally led me to their clients, which had very similar list management needs. As I kept gaining clients, I would hear from the client, hey, we'd like the software to do this other feature, call sheets or compliance or things like that. And, I, and so we just built onto that software over the years, more and more features until we redid it as web-based because originally it was client server and then we've done it m multiple times since then. It's amazing because when you think about the difference between what we expected as like a campaign has to have this in the basics. Like now, if we were talking to a campaign and they didn't have a CRM, we'd be like, well, what are you doing? <laughs> but the the world has changed a huge amount and much in part thanks to the work that you did with starting NGP. So it's really, it's wonderful to hear that story. Did you come up with the idea just based on the work that you were doing when you were in in school, just kind of like researching from an academic point of view? Or were you out on campaigns kind of observing that need? As I had mentioned, I had worked for two different campaign software firms from an earlier generation. For one as an employee, which I think I might have written the first Mac-based software. And then for another where I was an independent contractor. And that actually provided me royalties that helped me a lot get through graduate school. So I learned a version of the business from both of those firms, but I also felt that they were incredibly good negative examples in certain ways. In one way, in the partisan way, but in a bigger way, in the way that they treated clients and the way that they operated as a business. And, and I think that the secret, people know NGP Van now as sort of a sizable player in the space. But when we came up, you know, I was definitely the insurgent and a one person firm against multiple other firms that had a lot more people, including one with over a hundred. And it was quite different trying to beat them. I can only imagine that would have felt daunting, but hopefully also really exciting and apparently like a challenge that you were up to. And now you are talking to political entrepreneurs all the time as part of the work you're doing at Resistance Dashboard and the Great Battlefield. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So over the years of running a company and over the years since when other people have stepped up to the job and succeeded me, I got really interested in small business and continued this interest in politics. And so it was kind of a natural fit for me after the Trump election, where I really felt like, God, I gotta start paying attention again. This is really horrible. I started this podcast and I started interviewing people like you that were providing leadership in a really important time for the country. And I've, I have to say, I've kind of gotten addicted to it. Yeah. Yeah. There's some, I mean, it's an odd way to be involved. And sometimes the relationship is strange, like the way you and I are talking now as if we know each other that where we haven't met. <laughs> right. And some of the ones I've done in person have been 
have had a different quality to them, but I feel somehow that I've, that I'm involved when I'm able to talk to people all around the country who are leading the progressive movement, who are building organizations that are trying to make a difference. And this is small organizations, big organizations. One thing I've really tried to do with my podcast is to interview across lines of division on the left, interview across ideological lines. So I've interviewed like Jeff Weaver, who was Bernie's campaign manager, but I've interviewed Hillary's spokesperson or the centrist project or across lines about how to operate, like people who believe in direct action versus people who are really operating within the party or across academia and journalism and campaign staff and consultant and vendor rivals. I mean, you know, I can interview technological rivals like Catalyst and TargetSmart who don't like each other. There's a lawsuit between them, but the leaders of both would talk to me. And so for so many years, I had this, not just a partisan hat, but the hat of NGP software and NGP van, which I loved, but which was also kind of constraining. And now I can, I can be outside of that. I can talk to people who are interested in local politics, who are interested in national politics, who are working online, who are working offline, who are millennials, who are seniors. You know, it's really, that is fun and exciting. And it, it's giving me a lot of perspective. And I've also, it's allowed me to, in a few cases, to invest or help fund some of these groups to connect different people in different organizations that felt like, like yours, I didn't do any of the work of this, but like you merged your organization with another. There's other cases where that should be happening. Sometimes people have asked me to be an advisor informally or formally. And when it's really interesting to me is when I'm talking to somebody and I can feel their real passion for what they're doing. Maybe what's when I'm hearing their story about how they grew up and got into this. Maybe it's when I can see why they really care, why there's nothing more cool than somebody who found the thing that they're supposed to do, at least for some point in their life. That's a high for me. And to be able to sort of spread that around and hope that a few other people listen to that, get inspired by that, continue to fight to put themselves in that kind of position. That's something I like doing. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, just going back to what you said about the perspective that this affords you, I can totally understand why it's addictive because it's almost like you get to be like an anthropologist or a historian of what's happening in real time at this really pivotal moment in our country, or at least what I hope is a pivotal moment. And you kind of get a wide angle lens on this. And so I'm really curious as to, I mean, it's a big question, but sort of what you've learned in the last year or so of having these conversations that is like giving you hope and is exciting to you that maybe your average everyday person who's just watching the news or absorbing what they can on social media might not see yet, but that they will, hopefully. Like what are, what are the highlights for you so far? What comes to mind when you think about what you're hearing and seeing in the space that could drive us forward. One thing that, that has become my focus, maybe to my surprise, you know, so I've been so immersed in the, in the partisan battle, and I still care about that deeply. But I think there's something different with Trump now, where he's not only a danger 
in moving the country to the right, but he's a, a danger in moving the country out of democracy into something that is much more loathsome, something like the direction that Turkey and Poland and, and other countries have moved. And I do not want that. And so a few people I've talked to, like uh, Laura Rosenberger at Alliance for Securing Democracy or Justin Florence at Protect Democracy, which are nonpartisan entities that are really focused on stopping that in legal or other ways, monitoring what's going on, that has absorbed more of my focus than I maybe would have thought. Like if I was going to say, you know, what should we be funding right now? Yes, we've absolutely got to get back into power to stop this, but we also have to be prepared for a fight that isn't just partisan, that is really much more systemic about how we are governed. And that is very high stakes. What you're pointing to around, you know, not just the ideological narrative and the partisan narrative, but the narrative around reclaiming our democracy and preventing our country from sliding into something else, however you want to label it. It also feels like that's something that people are feeling. We talk about sort of the awakening that's happening in the country. I don't know that that we've all put words to it, but it feels like that there's something to that in terms of how people are getting engaged and why that isn't about, oh, well, I just didn't realize how high the stakes would be and here are the issues that I care about, but that is that is deeper than that and actually does go to something that people can feel about the fabric of our democracy kind of deteriorating or being at risk. That's a little more visceral. Yes. And What's of the moment right now is that it's at risk, but it isn't a determined fate. Right. So what what we do and what our fellow citizens do will help determine what happens. I mean, you had Trump pointing to Erdogan and saying he knows what he's doing. He is straightforwardly saying what he admires. And I don't know how competent he is to take us there. And I don't know how loyal his party is to go there with him but it's you know it's serious yeah well it's like that um that adage when someone tells you who they are believe them yeah that's something that's like repeating in my brain every day as i watch the news or read the news but you were asking me about it was a question that sort of had a positive answer and i'm not sure yet that the answer is positive like we're going into this midterm i don't know if it's going to be quite as great as I would like it to be, and I'm sure you would like it to be. And Mm -hmm. it's the kind of year that should turn democratic, right? But there's a lot of of different forces at play, and the economy and the stock market and some of those things are supporting this presidency. And so it's going to play out over all these races and with whatever national forces are are there in the last two weeks, as well as the fundamentals. I really hope it goes well. I do too. But it's also, I think what you're you know, talking about now is so right that three or four months may sound like not that long, but in campaign time, it's like everything could change in 24 hours. And so we really don't know where we're going to be. Some of those fundamentals won't change. Like how popular Trump is not going to change that much. Where the economy is not going to change that much. And those things are going to drive 
a lot. But then, yes, in any particular campaign, a scandal, a strong candidate, someone outworking someone else, the way they've put their message together, the groups that are supporting them, all of that adds up. And there's going to be a lot of races that are settled by a few thousand votes that are going to make the whole difference in how this is interpreted. And if it's read as a repudiation or read as the opposite. One of the things that I get asked a lot by friends who aren't quite as engaged in the political space, but are obviously paying attention is how does it look based on what we're seeing so far this year? And usually that becomes a conversation about voter turnout. And I feel like when we get to that conversation, my answer is usually that the signals are pretty good, right? Like what we're seeing happening around the country in different races, when we look at turnout, the signals overall are pretty good, but I wouldn't call them a forecast because context kind of rules and because there's such a long time between now and election day that I'm sure that there's there's some predictive stuff that we can take away from those results, but there are just too many variables that could change things. And our country is diverse enough that what is true in one district is not necessarily going to be true in another district. Yeah, time will tell. And also what, you know, are we fighting this on immigration or are we fighting it on healthcare? Are we fighting it on some event that happened in the world or is it localized? Those are all different elections that we don't quite know yet. If you had to bet right now, the, the Democrats pick up some number of seats in the House and lose a few seats in the Senate, but hopefully it's better than that. Oh, my blood pressure is going up <laughs> just having the conversation. <laughs> I, I, I think we're all feeling cautiously optimistic, but that sounds like a pretty spot on read to me. Kate, can I ask you a couple questions? Yeah, of course. So w- when I interviewed you back, I don't know, was it a year ago now? More. You were talking about trying to promote new civic engagement and promote new leaders. And then you you merged your new organization with the arena. How's that gone? And do you think you're moving towards the goals that you have? Yeah, I think the short answer, and then I'll give you the long answer. I think the short answer is that it's gone better than we could have imagined. So when I talked with you, I think it was either last May or June, I had just launched an organization called Chorus Agency. And our theory of change was that if we could get the right leaders in place, leaders who exemplified authenticity and integrity and who believed in a different kind of politics, one that is more inclusive and more grounded in equity and our common humanity, that we could change the culture of our politics and and get people more engaged. The basic, I think, assumption in that model is that no amount of great marketing can sell a bad product. And so we can talk all day long about all the different things that campaigns can do to be better and to be more strategic and to do better. But at the end of the day, if we don't have leaders in place who really resonate with people and inspire them, none of that matters. And so the way that we set up was to provide pro bono support to those leaders that we would go out and find, knowing that very often the kind of folks we want to work with are not people who are starting with huge coffers of money and networks of donors and strategists and staff, and basically work with them, matching them with a team of experts to help them build winning campaigns. So going out, finding those authentic leaders, 
and then giving them the resources and, and the support they need to win. I had been having conversations with my co-founder, Ravi Gupta, after chatting about sort of the original Arena Summit and going to Raleigh for the second one uh, that March of last year. And I think what we realized is that at the time, Arena was sort of incubating those candidates. They were bringing people together at these summits to connect with each other, learn about how to run for office, learn about how to get to work on political campaigns, build those relationships, give people the hard skills they need to get started. But they hadn't yet translated that into a direct way of helping the most promising leaders win. And at the same time, Chorus Agency was sort of looking at how to accelerate those candidates once we found them. But we had the same mission, right, which is changing the culture, getting the broader electorate more engaged around exceptional leaders, and ultimately driving policies that give us more equitable and inclusive society. And so we had a lot of conversations about what our vision was and how our models were complementary or not, and officially decided to merge in, I want to say it was late July of last year. I think we announced in August. And it's worked out really well uh, because now we have this model that not only goes out and helps connect people and recruit them to get more engaged, but that's paired with uh, this campaign support work that we're doing to get candidates elected. And since we merged last August, we've done a lot. We had the fourth Arena Summit in Phoenix last December. We supported 11 campaigns for uh, state legislature in Virginia last fall. Five of those candidates won, and they were nearly all long shots. Um, so we learned a lot from that, and we also feel like we made a great impact. And then going into the 2018 cycle, we are currently supporting 26 leaders across the country who are running for office. About half of those are at the federal level and the other half are running for state and local office. So it's been a whirlwind of a year, but we we built the thing that we uh, were trying to build. And now it's all about scaling and just going as deep as possible with these candidates and their campaigns to help them win in November. Sounds pretty cool. You know, I also wouldn't mind the chance to mention a couple other things that I am working on. One of them is my company, Graphicacy. It's an analytic design company that helps people tell stories with their own data. This is data visualization, right? It's, it's data visualization. It's a lot of building pieces of, of websites or mobile sites that help people navigate data. It's really, how, do, how can we tell a story visually and help further someone's mission? It's something that gives me a chance to still have something in the small business space that I'm trying to grow. I'm not the person running it day to day, but I do see the excellent work that's happening. The kind of clients that we're looking for are probably among the people that listen to my podcast or to yours or are your connections. So, you know, we'd love the chance for people to take a look at graphicacy.com and see what it is we do and why we might be a good partner. Awesome. And and who in a campaign context would sort of be your target audience here? Is it campaign managers, data directors? Probably more on the communication side. Because I was so many years in electoral politics, I tried to aim us into more of the policy space, but we would be happy to to be helpful where we could be. We've done recent work for people like the Anti-Defamation League or the Public Policy Institute of California, or Center for American Progress, World Bank, 
National Library of Medicine. Those are the kinds of clients that we've had some chance to tell stories for. But the best client might be a presidential campaign coming up or something like that. Very cool. I'm on your website now. And it, it feels like this is another sweet spot for you, just thinking about your personal history as well, using data to actually help people tell stories and communicate better. It kind of comes back full circle, I feel like, to the idea of, well, duh, of course, we should be engaging from a relational point of view. Data is often where people get lost, but if you can make it visual and make it something that, that folks are used to seeing in another light, suddenly it clicks. You know, how the company got going was it started with a, a, a name Time Plots. And if you look at timeplots.com, you can see a series of information graphic posters, which I oversaw having to do with the history of the Supreme Court and the U.S. presidency and the, and the House and the Senate and the parties and things like that, where I tried to tell the story of that institution through data. Also, have a pretty cool one on U.S. state boundaries, where you can see in some minute detail how how various boundaries were were formed over time and and how they were set. So, just a lot of fun with trying to do a static visual display of a big, important U.S. political institution. Yeah, very cool. Sorry for the silence. I was poking around. It looks really, really great. So um, how is Robbie? I, I also interviewed him. You know, he was a also very interesting and strong guest. Is he fired up? He, one thing I wanted, I was curious about, he, had, he said he had set a goal to raise a million dollars. And I have this theory that you guys have way surpassed that. We have. We have way surpassed that. And we've grown a lot. We have tripled that this year. And I think we're on our way to raising more. We currently have five partners. We'll be announcing two that have just joined us in August, as well as a marketing director and two associates and a number of contractors. And we are planning our next summit, which is themed around committing ourselves to a politics of love and action. It's happening in Philadelphia on September 7th and 8th. Um, and so that's been a big, a big focus for Ravi as sort of co-leaders of the organization, I focus mainly on what we do to support campaigns and candidates. And he focuses quite a bit on uh, the community work that we're doing and the summit. So this will probably be our biggest summit ever gathering in the city of brotherly and sisterly love. We're really looking forward to that. How does one go to that? If say I were interested in going, what do I have to do to get an invite or you just show up? Yeah, we have tickets. So you can go to our website, thearena.run. And uh, there's a banner right at the top that you can click on. And we ask folks to buy a ticket. We also offer scholarships for folks because we don't want price to be a barrier for anyone. And you can just get on the website and get your ticket. I think we do it all through Eventbrite. So it's pretty easy. And then we gather in Philadelphia. What would someone expect to see or do if they attend this, this conference in Philadelphia? Yeah. So it's sort of... Uh, a few things. I, I don't think it's like other conferences that people have been to. I think the arena summits have kind of found their own niche identity. But I think if, if you are someone who plans on coming to the summit, you can expect to hear from some really incredible thought leaders in the progressive movement. We've got a really amazing lineup of speakers for our plenary session. So Michael Tubbs, who's the mayor of Stockton, is going to be there. 
Dan Pfeiffer, co-host of Pod Save America, formerly Obama administration, is going to be there speaking. Mitch Landrieu, John King, Malcolm Kenyatta, Chrissy Houlihan, who's running for Congress in Pennsylvania and is one of our arena fellows. So we've got a pretty great program of folks who are there to kind of share their stories and their work and get people fired up and let them know how they can get more engaged. And then we also have a lot of trainings for folks. So I would say that the Arena Summit is a place to come to get inspired, to connect with other people, and also to build skills. Um, We're going to be doing a whole bunch of of different breakout trainings, uh, everything from working on a 2020 campaign to uh, taking action in the midterms to unconscious bias to social entrepreneurship. So it's a great place to build relationships with other like-minded people. It's a great place to build new skills. And I think the sort of intangible coming out of all of this is being a part of a community that stays connected, that holds each other accountable to taking action and to living our values. And that's really, I think, the the most special part of coming to these things is that people stay engaged with each other afterward. And I really am someone who believes that our relationships are our greatest teachers. And so that's, I think, what makes it the most special. Not to get too cheesy. I am uh, registering as we speak. <laughs> awesome. And I and I'm going to do the thing where you also help fund a scholarship. Oh, amazing! Thank you. We really appreciate that. Now I got to put in all these different questions about. <laughs> yeah, there's a form. <laughs> let me let me just do that live to make it very exciting. I hope I can actually attend. I hope you can too. It'll be really fun. (laughs) There's always a party on Saturday night too. So it's not all just serious talk about our future. It's also a good time. Yeah, I can see there's a a few things with asterisks that I've somehow missed. And I only have 13 more minutes to complete this. (laughs) Yeah, you might want to save it for later. (laughs) I'll follow up with you to confirm. (laughs) So what else... What you like me to ask you that I have not asked yet? I think you've covered it. I mean, one thing that I could go on and on about for days is just like what we're learning with campaigns. And I think there have been some surprises there. Like what? Well, you know, when we got into this, I think we thought that most of the work that we would do would be around strategy and sort of tactical implementation on campaigns. So how do you navigate, you know, which vendors you're going to work with? How do you think about voter targeting? How should you be thinking about your message and how you're engaging with voters? And and that's definitely a huge part of the work. I don't want to downplay that, but I think what we have realized in the last year certainly is that as important as all of that is, We're also seeing that campaign managers and staff need a lot of support when it comes to just how to build a functional organization that is going to create the conditions for people to do their best work and to be successful and to meet goals and to really feel a sense of common purpose. It's the softer stuff that's like harder to teach that most of the young people who are taking jobs on campaigns are never really trained on before they get there. And so we've ended up investing a lot in management training and leadership coaching and helping people think through how they're going to hire and what kind of interview questions they're going to ask people and how they're going to evaluate 
staff prospects. And then how once they bring those folks on board, they're going to give them the training that they need to be successful in their roles and set up systems for helping them develop and continue to thrive in those in those positions. And, and I think part of it is that you have a lot of folks who are 22, 23, 24 years old stepping into leadership positions on these campaigns where they're managing staff and they haven't had management training before. Or you have folks who are going from, you know, I volunteered on a city council race to I'm managing a congressional race. This is the first time that I have ever seen the tables flip. There are more amazing candidates running for office who need staff than there are experienced staff out there looking for a campaign to join. You know, it creates this environment in which investing in talent is just really, really critical. And I think we underestimated just how important that would be. We weren't, I don't think, naive, but we assumed that most of our time would be spent on strategy, narrative, and fundraising. And and those are still core pillars of what we do. But we're increasingly recognizing that in order to get the next generation of leadership elected to public office, we also have to invest in developing and training and coaching the next generation of political talent to run their campaigns. That makes sense. I I wonder if you can help me answer a question that I got a call today. A friend of mine who's run a company for a bunch of years has all kinds of management skills, has financial resources, wants to get involved in politics, doesn't know the best way to enter. He doesn't want to just make contributions. He wants to dive in a little bit. He also doesn't want to just go door to door or make calls. He wants to leverage the experience he has. How would someone like that enter politics? I mean, I think there are so many ways. He should call us. We can hook him up. Part of our model is connecting campaign leadership teams, campaign managers, and sort of the senior director level folks with mentors and coaches. And increasingly, those are folks who either are very, very experienced in politics or increasingly folks who come from other sectors but have transferable skills, kind of to the point I was just making around leadership and management. So we would love to help him get to work as a coach or a mentor if he's interested. There's so many people, I think, right now, whether or not they're elites like that or just regular folks who have been professionals who want to get involved in this moment. Yeah, I mean, I think there are multiple entry points. There are groups like ours, you know, Tech for Campaigns is another, I think, really good example of an organization that's actually designed to help people with transferable skills use those specialized skills on campaigns. So there are definitely groups to get plugged in with. And then I think the other thing that people, that doesn't necessarily come to mind for people, but that is actually a really easy way to get involved is to say, who are the candidates I'm most excited about? And then to just reach out to their campaigns. And a lot of the time people assume that like, oh, well, if I email the info account, I'm just going to get a standardized response and no one's actually going to re- you know, respond to me and at personal level or, or whatever. But the truth is that on most of these campaigns, they are reading that account. And if they know that you've got a specialized skill set or you know, something meaningful to contribute, they'd be stupid not to reach out pretty quickly. So I actually always tell my friends, you know, if, if it's not through us, but you have somebody in particular who you want to help, even if they're not an arena fellow, like cold email them or cold call the campaign and tell them who you are and what you have to offer and what you're interested in doing. And more often than not, I think campaigns are, are pretty good at leveraging those kinds of resources that come their way. Kate, what's making you feel most optimistic going into this fall? Oh, gosh. 
That's a really good question. It's a question I usually ask other people because <laughs> I, I like to collect those bright spots. But um, honestly, I think for me, you know, most of the the contact that I have with people who are doing this work is either directly with candidates or their campaign managers. And I have been astounded by how committed and fired up and persistent and resilient people have been this cycle. I've had the really good fortune of watching candidates start with very little resources and very little hope coming to the table with this story about how they're going to do this crazy thing and they're going out on a total limb. And I have watched all the powers that be respond really skeptically to that and then seen those candidates overcome those challenges and kind of break out and build viable campaigns. And, and now some of these folks really have real chances of winning. When I look at our current cohort of arena fellows, they're 26 total, half are running federally for U.S. Congress. And there are a number of them who, when they started last year, had $40,000 in the bank or $50,000 in the bank and had no institutional support. We're really lucky that, uh, and knock on wood, 16 of the 17 candidates that we've supported in 2018 have won their primaries. A lot of those folks are the same people that I'm mentioning who started out off with no impressive assets to speak of uh, when they were getting ready to launch their campaigns or launching their campaigns. And they have defied conventional wisdom and they have proven themselves viable because they're willing to hustle and work really, really hard. And they're willing to say what they really think and fight for their values. And that is what keeps me going. Uh, when I think of stories like Lauren Underwoods, who is um, a nurse from Naperville, who's running in Illinois 14, who decided last summer that she was going to run for office and, and really just, you know, worked with limited resources to build a really smart, authentic campaign and won her primary with over 57% of the vote in a district that all kinds of people were saying she never sh should have won. I think she's got a real shot at winning in November. That's the kind of stuff that excites me and, and makes me hopeful because it reinforces this idea that our greatest limitation is our own imagination. And I think that is particularly true and has been true for progressives and folks who identify on the left for a really long time. So again, you're getting a cheesy response from me, but it's, it's those leaders who are willing to pick themselves up over and over and over and over again when they are told no time after time, who I think are, are on the pathway to really make history. Always good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, if that weren't the thing that gave me hope, it would be hard to do this job, but it makes it easier. What about you? Can I turn the question around? What I like seeing is so many people who are so much better at doing what they're doing than I could ever be. There are so many skills that are required in politics, like that ability to get up every day and spend your energy meeting people and trying to talk them into something that would truly exhaust me and which I also would not be too adept at and to see people doing that. I've much more concentrated on the organizations and there's a lot of people who started things that honestly I looked at and I said, I don't know that this is going anywhere. And then to see them grow something and sell other people on it 
and make a difference across the area that they're working, that is inspiring to me. It's often happens with somebody who is a lot younger than me or more naive than me in the space, and they don't see it as impossible, something that I do see as unlikely. And I do my best not to say, give up, buddy, or gal. <laughs> and then, you know, I follow it forward and I'm like, wow. Now, of course, not that doesn't happen for everybody, but there's a lot of very impressive, very talented, very articulate, smart, hardworking people who really care about what's going on in the country. And a lot of them have found each other and are talking. And there is this kind of spectacular network that's forming itself. And I really hope it works. It's funny. I feel like when I um, was in my mid-20s and I moved to D.C. for the first time to work in Washington politics, which is, I think, very different from working out in the States, I found it to be this really disillusioning experience. Did not last long. Lived in D.C. for six months and then went back out to the States and worked on the reelect uh, for President Obama. But it felt like this big disillusioning experience. I, I would sort of self-identify as a cynic when it came to a lot of things about our political system. And I feel like in the last two years, I've had the reverse experience. I have been unlearning things and people have been changing my mind about how I conceptualize the whole thing. And that's sort of a silver lining to what otherwise has felt like a really challenging couple of years. So I can identify with that a little bit. I, you know, I, I guess if there was something that I would hope people would pay attention to that I'm worried they're not is how the world looks outside of the progressive bubble, particularly the, the organizations and the campaigns that are really working hard, but don't see the quite substantial part of America that doesn't see the world quite the way we do and find a way to talk to them too. I don't agree with that portion of us who says we should only be talking to the people we agree to. We got to just get out our base. We just have to excite the left. It is a very big country. There's a lot of districts that the left alone cannot win, that progressives won't carry unless we speak to other Americans who just have different lens on what's going on. And we have to find a way to talk to them and persuade them and get them on our team because we, we need everybody right now. I completely agree. And I think it's not just, just to go a step further, I think it's not just about what we need to win. And it is that, but it's also sort of in the longer arc of history, if we're not having those conversations and we're not doing that bridging work to understand those different points of view and those different ex lived experiences then in a sense, we keep leaving people behind. And what happened in 2016 will just happen again. And so I, I think that's important, not just when we talk about electoral victories and sort of what's strategic moving toward the elections in November, but I think it's important for us as a country if we want to maintain any kind of progress that we've made over the last several decades or come back to that kind of progress and keep it moving forward. So I couldn't agree more. Is there anything that... Um, that I should have asked you that I haven't asked yet? Probably, but I think we're... Uh, <laughs> Are we out of time? We're, we're approaching that hour mark and we probably exhausted anyone 
who's stuck with us so far. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Maybe, Kate, we do it again in a year. That sounds great. We'll make it an annual thing. <laughs> Hopefully we can celebrate a good year that happened between now and then. I sure hope so. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to share your story, even though I know it's not that what you lead with in your day-to-day, -day, and to also talk about what you're learning through uh, Resistance Dashboard and Graphicacy and the Great Battlefield. Really appreciate it, and I think the arena community will be excited to, to hear it. And I continue to appreciate the work that you're doing and the work of your co-founders and other staff and other compatriots in this fight. So keep going. Thank you. Thank you.